0: Well, welcome back everyone to the whitetail theories podcast today on the mic. We have Michael Warren, who I just found out is actually named Aaron and has kind of been confusing me here for a little bit on what his name actually is, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Uh, welcome Michael to the podcast.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, buddy.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So today we're going to talk about uh, kind of getting started hunting out West, whether you're coming from a state potentially like California California. And you're headed to the Rockies, which is uh, your situation, correct?
1: Exactly. Yes,
0: sir. Yep. And then this will be very applicable to uh, people out here, hunters out here in the East as well. Um, It's going to be pretty much the same overlap. But before we get started in that, uh, Michael, I'd like you to kind of just give us a rundown of your background, who you are, how you got started hunting, that kind of stuff.
1: So, uh, I grew up in Northeastern California. We don't particularly like to claim California for obvious reasons. <laughs> but uh, I grew up hunting with my dad I mean, from the time I was you know, three or four years old, going with him sitting in a tree stand in California and uh, typically hunting. It's a uh, blacktail mule deer cross, local to our area. And then when I was 13, I uh, went on my first out of state hunt to Idaho and have not missed a year since two thousand and one. So this year was the twentieth year I've gone to Idaho. Wow! Um, pretty much, I've, I've hunted and fished all my life up here. That's kind of uh, the attraction that I have to going in places like Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. Is that it? it, it just offers so much opportunity that not that California doesn't offer, but it, it offers a little bit more opportunity in California. Does.
0: Well, isn't it a lot easier to um, potentially hunt? those states versus hunting california
1: it it is california's tag lottery system is really unpredictable um there's only the only areas that are over the counter tags that you can buy every year are west of i-5 um which is about three and a half hours for me to travel just to hunt you know what i guess what you'd call your local um everything else is a lottery draw um based on a preference point system they set up several years ago but it's not a very good system you can't plan each year so if you have three points you don't know if you're going to draw a particular tag on it it's still kind of a random draw.
0: so it's a true lottery
1: correct yeah and the more points you have the more likely it is you will get the tag but the way they cut tags due to the, the way uh, wildfires have affected the state, there was, the droughts affected the state, they seem to cut tags every year, but it doesn't cut applicants. So where, as we used to draw an, an area right local for me in Susanville, we used to draw every other year, is now um, five or six years between draws. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's tough. Uh, so outside of kind of uh, Black Tails and that... Uh, if you you call them the the blacktail muley hybrid, Uh, what else do you have to hunt in California? Because I think that's also confusing uh, for a lot of people that don't really know what California has to offer.
1: Uh, California, I mean, politics set aside, California, in my opinion, is one of the coolest places because you can hunt anything from um, blacktail on coastal bluffs right on the edge of the ocean, all the way to a high desert mule deer, which is more local, just just east of where I live here. But um, there's opportunities to hunt waterfowl up and down the state, and that's um, from the coast to the Central Valley to northeastern California where I'm at. Um, upland birds, you know, chucker, quail, pheasant, um, as well as bears. Black bears have an incredible population in California now due to some uh, legislation that was passed limiting Uh, your ability to hunt them as far as what means you can't use hounds and you can't use bait so black bear hunting now has really become a uh, sitting on water or spot and stop type of situation do
0: you guys have a spring uh black bear season
1: no we do not and that's that's something that we have really uh i know um, the california deer hunter association has really been pushing for because of the detriment that the population has had on the local deer population
0: Right. Yeah, exactly.
1: It's uh, it, it really is. I mean, myself this year, I, I hunted nine days during archery season before I filled my tag, and I saw 17 different black bears in nine days. Oh, my gosh. That's insane. Yes. And, and all local to, I mean, probably three or four square miles. I, I hunt a very small area, but the population really has gotten to a point where it's the quota they set every year of 1,700 hasn't been met in, I think, 13 years wow
0: that's crazy i find it very interesting because you so here in pa we have a uh a fairly liberal black bear season um they've extended it quite a bit there's uh, a very extended archery season there's a muzzleloader season and they've actually extended the rifle season and we're still not hitting our quotas that we would like to get a lot of that is weather dependent it's not necessarily uh Effort of hunters per se, but right. one of the things that's really hurting us is New Jersey going back and forth on whether they're going to allow black bear hunting. And one of the cities, if you will, up in the northeast of Pennsylvania that is right along the Delaware River is just absolutely loaded with black bears. Uh, the residents are always complaining about them being in their dumpsters, uh, breaking into their houses, that stuff. And mm-hmm it's like a losing battle because no matter how many bear you kill in that region, it's just going to get fulfilled from the New Jersey population.
1: Right. Just, just oh, oh, um, spill over almost from New Jersey.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I'm sure you guys probably run into a lot of that too, where you, let's say in your hunting area, you might take out 25 bear in that region or something like that. It's just right. going to have, you're just going to have bears that retake that place.
1: Exactly. It's for every one that's killed, it seems like there's three to take its place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. it, uh, it's black bears, and and I don't I don't particularly hunt black bear. I buy a bear tag every year. Um, I don't have a real drive to kill black bears because it's not a it's not a meat that I've I'm, you know I really is, is sought after by me. Um, my my role for it is I have a lot of friends that do love bear. Is more or less to if I fill my tag is is essentially looking after the deer population.
0: Um. Oh. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much the same way. It wasn't until recently that I really got into it, but
1: mm-hmm.
0: from like a ma- uh, a habitat management standpoint, or or just like wildlife management, uh, trying to do my part in managing the apex predators in my area. Exactly. Which a lot of that yeah. really flies under the radar. Uh, we we yeah. talked about that on a pa- podcast before. It's like, could you imagine if every hunter was required to go after a uh, a predator before they could fill their deer tag
1: that that would actually be an outstanding system just so you you know that the checks and balance are in place for the deer or, or or whatever other game animal are in the area
0: exactly yeah exactly but so many so many hunters really don't think about it because i and i'm, I'm not even sure 100 percent why this is just speculation but it just doesn't have kind of like that uh that sexiness to it if you
1: will exactly it, it's not as attractive mm-hmm. i i i totally agree the only uh predator that i i really want <laughs> to hunt um is a uh a gray wolf in idaho
0: oh that'd be cool yeah that'd be really cool uh so uh i mean we might as well that's a good introduction into what we really want to talk about as far as the meat and potatoes but i do want to ask you this question i'm trying to remember to ask every guest this but what is something that you know about hunting now that you wish you knew 10 years ago
1: it's really hard for me to pinpoint uh anything specific uh as far as what i've learned recently that i would i wish i would have known say 10 years ago but uh it it would have to be towards archery elk hunting. I, I probably learn more about archery elk every season um, than I have any other species because they're so dynamic. Their habits, their patterns—they're almost an impossible animal pattern. Um, and most most of the time, when I've been elk hunting, if it's really heavy rain, things like that, we'll take the time and we, we won't go out first thing in the morning. And that has been my biggest mistake. Which I learned two years ago, uh, because that rain fires those elk up, unlike anything I've ever seen, and I didn't know that. Uh, so that that would have to be the the thing I would say that I've it has been probably the hardest lesson to learn um, over my time, especially hunting in Idaho.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. It it's interesting that you say that. uh, because one, you don't know what you don't know, right? So if you don't experience it, you can't like kind of test
1: it. Okay.
0: And do here's the, here's the, I guess a follow up question before, like I said, we dive into the meat and potatoes of this podcast. But do you find yourself testing a lot of theories and then just kind of doing a trial and error to figure out what tactics work potentially even from one year to the next? Because animals are always evolving based on hunting pressure, right? So something that might've worked four years ago doesn't work now.
1: Um, Yeah. And, and I, I can say I, I try, I, I do that trial and error, not necessarily year to year, but almost day to day, especially, um, especially on a species like mule deer that like elk are so dynamic and their patterns are so random. They don't, they don't trail up. They don't follow the same feed pattern. They almost have a circulation. And in specifically for Idaho this year, uh, we hunted an area that we've hunted, you know, the last 15 years. And we just weren't seeing the animals that we're used to seeing there. So we kind of took a gamble and we went on in a much easier place to access and ran into deer everywhere. And it, it was really ironic because we had seen pressure in the area we initially had. We had seen pressure that we'd never seen there before, as far as hunters go. So we just kind of found a a really close area to where we were camped. And there was no pressure, and that's where the deer were funneling to. And they were funneling into specific um, little basins and draws. And that, that was a trial and error. It took us about six days to figure that out. Um, but it was day to day. We did that very same thing. We saw pressure up high, so we hunted down low. We didn't run into anything. So then we started covering everywhere in between the high points and the low points and eventually just ran into them in a place we never would have expected. Mm-hmm. A place we never had before. And, and we spent a lot of time in that particular unit. Yeah.
0: That, uh, uh, it, that's really funny because I had a very similar experience hunting elk in Idaho where, like here, we're in PA uh, and Everything we're doing is just e-scouting, right? So you 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 do the best you can as far as research and what kind of habitat elk like, where they like to bed, how they like to use thermal, so on and so forth. You take that out into the field in your first trip out there, uh, you realize that the majority of what you potentially read or, or heard online is trash because everybody's uh, applying those tactics. And then... Right you do something that's out of the box and they're all over.
1: Yes, exactly. Just just a, a random shot in the dark. It's <laughs> yep.
0: Yep, so we we scouted uh we e-scouted uh a, a spot and it was pretty far back, uh, it had some water, it had some good meadows, stuff like that. The the quintessential things that you think you would look for when hunting elk in the rut. And mm-hmm. all we ran into were hunters. There was some old elk sign in there, but we did not see. I think we saw a spike in there, and that was it. So we popped smoke, I think, on day three and just, like, looked at the map and was like, we need to try something else. Well, I we ended up hunting, I don't know, maybe, like, three miles off the road, and we were just
1: covered up in them. They were everywhere. Right. So. It, elk are so – I can't say they're my favorite animal because mule deer will always be my favorite animal. Uh, elk are such such a cool animal to watch because, like I said, they're so dynamic. There's no consistency in anything they do. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even during the rut, you know the bulls—they do—they get pretty dumb when when they're chasing cows, but then they'll completely flip and it's the smartest animal in the woods. For no rhyme or reason whatsoever, they'll, they'll one day they're they're running right India, and the next day you can't get within a mile. Yep, exactly. And, and I I still I I'm, I'm gonna figure that animal out one day. I spend enough time chasing them. Uh, eventually, I'm gonna figure them out. But they're they've definitely been the hardest animal to hunt that that I've ever hunted. Well,
0: let's let's dial this in, and then let's kind of start from the beginning because I think we might be jumping ahead here a little bit so why don't why don't i start you off with this question mike when when did you first start traveling to other states to hunt
1: Uh, my first trip out of state i was 13 um which obviously i was was just tagging along with my dad i didn't have a lot of research or thought into it um
0: and what what made uh, your dad want to do that
1: he actually started hunting in idaho in uh, 1989 the year after year after I was born, I was born in 88, and I think that what kept him going was the tags were easy to come by. You could buy an over-the-counter deer tag and put in for a lottery draw, or the, the limited draw, and if you didn't draw, uh, draw a tag, you still had a deer tag that you could use in any general season throughout the state. As long as it was a general over-the-counter season, it didn't matter which unit you hunted. Wow yeah which was an incredible system especially for non-residents because you could really plan you know every year you know you're going in october no matter what whether you draw a tag or you buy it on the counter you know you're going to hunt you're in october so family-wise and work-wise i think he stayed that direction um because it was easy to plan it was easy to guarantee a hunt
0: gotcha okay that makes sense so let's fast forward here a little bit um did you do you continue to still go with your dad, or are you kind of sometimes doing it on your own?
1: Uh, in Idaho, I I always hunt with my dad every, every year. This was 20 years was this year that I hunted with him uh, in Idaho, and that that's just been kind of a uh, tradition. That's always been hit our thing together. Yeah,
0: for sure. No, that's super uh, cool.
1: Yeah, it, it's been it's been I've been pretty lucky, man. I, I certainly can't never complain about the opportunity I've had
0: right right yeah absolutely so uh as you started uh growing up and and you got into the position where um maybe you started making more more hunting choices or maybe you learned something from your dad um what did you guys look for as far as like picking locations let's talk about that a little bit
1: uh um, access was, was our biggest thing. And whereas most people look for access, we were looking for no access. Um, roads are, have been our biggest, um, really our, my, my entire, uh, hunting experience. Um, so when we've looked at different units, it was deer population or elk population was our number one concern. we looking at, uh, harvest statistics and talk, talking with the local Fish and Wildlife biology, especially in Idaho, um, but the more road access it, a unit had, the more we would stray away from it because we we try to stay as far away from anybody else we can. Um, mainly, we don't we don't want to mess up their hunt. We we don't want the adverse effect on us. either. Sure. People pushing too many animals around, get too much going. <clears throat> gotcha, gotcha. Uh,
0: now. With that mindset, when when you're looking for those locations, are you finding a lot of those locations in general over-the-counter units, or is that kind of a mix of over-the-counter and also uh, lottery draw units as well?
1: So it, in Idaho, it, it's pretty easy to find uh, the limited access or you know wilderness type areas on the over counter hunts. Over over-the-counter hunts on the limited draw. Um, we've never really focused as much on access because the number of hunters was already limited. Gotcha. So like with the, the units that we put in for specifically in, in Idaho, uh, one of them is uh, unit 55 and then there's a late hunt in unit 54, which are in the South Hills, Idaho near the Nevada border. There's really not, it's not a limited access. It's extreme terrain when you get off the roads and you really want to put miles on but those hunts have those hunts have such a limited number of uh, tags, the access never really became a problem because even in the heavier populated areas far as heavier uh, hunt, hunting pressure, we never really run into anybody because there's not many hunters to run in.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, the just density of hunters just aren't there because it is limited access.
1: Now, exactly.
0: When you're looking to put in for draw units. Uh, how much are you taking into account the amount of tax they allot for those units? So for example, are you trying to pick units that maybe have 25 uh, spots for that unit or like, is is there a rhyme or reason as to what you're picking as far as your
1: units? So most of the control, the controlled or limited entry tags we put in for there. Um, it's, it's based really on the deer population. Um, like one of those units that I mentioned, area, Unit 54, only has 25 tags total. Mm-hmm. And only 10% of those tags will be allotted to non-residents. So in reality, there's two tags for non-residents. Um, and we put in for that just because of the time of year. It's a, it's a November hunt in the rut in a winter area. So it's, it's really the time of year is what we're looking more so at than the number of tags. Because Idaho doesn't have a point system. It is totally random every year. Gotcha. Um, that, that's really where we've kind of leaned to, more towards, you know, hunts that, like, you know, hunting mule deer in November is not a real common, uh, common hunt that's available. It's none over the counter, um, with a rifle anyway. So that's that's why we've kind of, sh- you know, directed ourselves to that one because on the off chance of that we draw that could be just an incredible hunt given the area and what we've seen there on an early archers
0: okay so uh let me ask you this uh when you were when you're looking at putting in for various units based on like for example that unit that is going to be potentially uh two non-res draws what what are your expectations for something like that
1: oh i um i'm gonna have to ask you ask that one again i (laughs) i got my one-year-old just running around i kind of away from the computer for a second
0: all good all good so sorry bro. on on a on a unit like that where you might only they might only be selecting two non-residents and 25 uh allotted tags for that unit what would be your expectations for uh that type of hunt
1: as far as the expe- uh, quality, quality of man. hunt
0: and then quality of animal
1: um it would probably be far higher than it should be <laughs> mm-hmm. um in a hunt like that, just because you figure if you're lucky enough to draw, you know, one or one of two or even both non-resident tagged partner, the the expectation would be extremely high. Um, even though I've never seen that unit in that time of year, I, I would still have some reservations, but I would probably get to the level of, of, I'd probably be disappointed on the hunt itself because my expectations would probably be unrealistic.
0: Right. And Um, ultimately, ultimately, that's kind of what I want to get at is I think for people that don't have a lot of experience with traveling to various states, there is a lot of uh, unrealistic expectations and they get caught up in like, hey, I'm going to burn seven points on this unit and it's going to be just an absolutely ridiculous hunt where whether it's an elk hunt. They think it's going to be something like they see from the Primus movies or or stuff that they see on TV, <laughs> and that's just not reality. Even even with like it, mule deer, they think that they're going to see two hundred inch mule deer around every tree on uh, something that's like a, a seven point draw, and that's just not the case.
1: That's that's exactly right, and that's where um, a lot will they'll burn you know seven units on a great unit in Colorado or you know whatever various state they're putting in for. But then, when they do the hunt, they almost get discouraged because it it wasn't uh, right off of Eastman's hunting journal or off of you know the the truth about hunting from Primos. It just that's not a a realistic expectation going into a unit for the very first time. The the biggest suggestion and thing I a piece of advice I could give to anybody is have the expectation, but don't let the expectation supersede reality. If you're seeing a lot of animals, then just you know stay into the animals. And if you're not, it, that's where it really becomes like what you did on your elk hunt, looking at the map and, and being able to adapt and change with the conditions or with, you know, different locations as far as the animals. are.
0: Let's talk about um, expectations. So mm-hmm. with your experience and guiding people through this podcast, what are some things that you can you know right off the bat that you've made mistakes on in the past with unrealistic expectations, and then paint a picture of what reality actually is?
1: Uh, really? That the, the first thing as far as expectations is uh, the number of animals. That that's what most people they any hunter that goes into the woods they all we all want to see. You know, as far as mule deer, you want to see big bucks. You want to see a 200-inch mule deer. But your expectation should be find a good representation. Find a good representation of the animal you're chasing. A mule deer, a pronghorn antelope, uh, you know, a a public land whitetail even, or, or an elk, that don't let social media or what you're seeing on TV become your standard. Your standard is... Do better than you did the last year. So, if you've never killed a mule deer and you go out and you kill a, you know, say a, a 125 inch three by three mule deer, that's a great deer. No matter what unit you're in, that's your first one. So, you, you can't have a standard or an expectation superseding anything you've ever done. So, that would be the thing I've learned most because I've passed on a lot of really, really, just really good quality mule deer. And with that expectation of, you know, I want to kill a 185 or a 200-inch mule deer and end up killing one smaller than what I was passing. Right. Or end up not killing one at all. And not killing a deer isn't the end of the world. If you have that expectation and you hold that standard, that's, you know, good on you. Just don't get discouraged if you're expecting a 200-inch mule deer and you kill a 150-inch book. That's a great deer anybody's book.
0: Absolutely, and I I want to piggyback off this here a little bit. So, my my first question is: Where do you think your skill set would be at if you didn't pass those animals up? Because there's something to be said about having that experience and getting that experience under your belt. Correct.
1: There, there is there is a it's it's a learning experience watching you know, watching 150 inch field deer, deer walk away, knowing you could have you know killed him. You 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 could have harvested that deer is almost uh, kind of a notch-in-your-belt feeling, and there's almost an immediate buyer's remorse that you have as soon as he's out of sight. So that, that experience is great to have, um, this, this skill set or, or experience. I, uh, I don't know that that passing on a deer says really anything as far as a, a skill set, More about the discipline. If you set a goal and and you're really goal oriented to whatever that animal is, whether it's deer or antelope, Um, but it it is great experience to watch that deer walk away. um, As long as you're confident that if you kill it on the last day, you shouldn't pass it on the first day. If that makes sense.
0: Totally. Totally. But and kind of to play devil's advocate here too whereas like let's say you're going out on your first trip and Mm -hmm. you have an expectation that you're going to be shooting 160 inch mule deer like that's that's what you want to set your standard at well Mm -hmm. it might take you five to seven years till you get to that point point in just building your skill set because you're not working your way up the chain so what i mean by that is like let's say you the first year you go out, you harvest a, a, a forky, a, a year-and-a-half or a two-and-a-half-year-old buck. And then mm-hmm. the next year, you're trying to get a three-and-a-half, and, and you're working your way up. Well, knowing and the experience that you're going to get from killing that forky, one, you're going to know what your physical capabilities are as far as right. uh, how to how to pack it out, how to quarter it up, how to make sure the meat doesn't spoil. All these other various avenues that you also need to learn. That you're not going to learn by not killing animals so right that that's kind of like my caveat to saying like it's it's totally different i i feel like it's totally different when you're hunting out west because there's so many other facets that you still need to have skill sets at it's not necessarily like um here in the east where you shoot a whitetail 200 yards from the road and you just drag it to the truck
1: correct i i, I see what you're saying and and I I totally agree with that. Hunting out west certainly it brings it brings to light a whole new set of challenges um, and and a, a skill set, if you will, that you have to have because nobody wants to go out and and you know lose meat due to spoilage or just not caring for it the right way. So I I absolutely would say that not passing on a deer out west, especially your, your first time, there's. There's so much to be said for harvesting that, that animal, whatever it may be, and gaining the experience every time. I, I can tell you, from my experience, as opposed to the first one that I quartered and packed out to the one I did this year, is night and day difference. Mm-hmm. Um, every every kill, every pack out, there's been something I've learned. And I, I'd love to say I've got it wired and, and figured out and you know, next year hopefully I'll I'll learn something new again because every situation is different. The dynamics of the terrain, the the weather is almost a nightmare sometimes because it'll be you know three degrees one day and seventy the next. So your your whole timeline then changes as far as how fast you have to get that animal out and, and into a, a meat cooler, or even just into an ice chest.
0: Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And I. I mean, there's a ton of different rabbit holes we can go down, but I want to try to stay on topic here, Uh, but I do want to add this as well. Let's say you're going out and you're doing like a backpack hunt where you're going to be hunting off off of your back. Mm -hmm. That style of hunting is so different as far as um, eating mountain house meals or MREs or whatever you're packing in that... Mm -hmm. You could screw up based on your food and not necessarily have the energy. Let's say you're elk hunting and your eyes are real big, and you, like you're going to go five miles back in, and it's just you and a buddy. You don't have, you didn't have the caloric intake, and you find yourself that like you're packing that elk out that you killed, and you can't go farther than two miles, and potentially the whole meat spoils or the whole elk spoils, and then you took that animal's life basically for no reason.
1: That that's that's exactly right. And that's where uh really almost uh you, you have to be realistic with yourself and like what you were saying, the expectation, you know, everyone wants so I'm gonna I'm gonna do what Nate Simmons does on a Western hunter and I'm gonna go six miles in by myself and pack that animal out. And in reality if if that's the first time you've ever done that, that's not a realistic goal. And it's it's not a fair goal to you or the animal that, that you may potentially get. Exactly. Um, but that, that, that is a, that, I mean, that's almost a whole new rabbit hole as far as that, mm-hmm. that style of hunt and preparing yourself for that. Cause I, I've personally been at a calorie deficit, um, due to forgetting very minor things uh, on a, on a, a pack in style hunt. And, and it is, it, it it's, it's almost a little scary sometimes because you'll get to a point where you can't. Hardly function because you don't have the calorie intake it takes to build yourself up with the energy to get back to where you need to be. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And like, and
0: again, like I, I, don't really want to go down this rabbit hole. I want to try to stay on 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 task here. But <laughs> we can do a we can do a second podcast. The mindset too, like how much it, it, it's such a mental game out there. Uh, oh, it,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's one hundred percent a mental game
0: you're going to be away from your family. You're going to be sleeping in the woods for extended periods of time, potentially stuff that you've never done before. All that stuff's really going to weigh on you. And it's, it's going to put you through a roller coaster.
1: Absolutely. It is. And, and that's where, you know, I, I would, I would encourage you know, anybody that that listens to this, that's really looking to make that, that trip out west and, and kind of take that plunge just to, to do your due diligence and do your research as far as, um, Equipment but so there's there's so much research on equipment and uh the one of the best um, other uh podcasts that you can listen to regarding uh, western hunts would be uh, that Eastman's elevated. I listen to that religiously and that's that's been a huge tool for me, even you know being somebody that uh, hunts out West I mean, every year that's obviously pretty much all I've ever done is hunt out west um but the research to me uh here. Um, and location of course, uh, is, is really what anybody listening should look the, the most at is to make sure you have the right tools for whatever you're planning to do and not trying to kind of fake it till you make it. Cause that, that's a place where you can get yourself into a really bad spot.
0: <laughs> very much so. Very much so. All right. I want to rewind here a little bit cause I think we jumped over some spots. I want to <laughs> talk about, um, uh, state selection and, uh, understanding uh draw limited entry over the counter and and just cover that stuff on a somewhat basic version and then we'll we'll take it from there okay so how do you go through or what would you recommend as far as um giving advice to somebody for state selection
1: so it the state selection comes down to what the what the goal is. If, if you're looking for a trophy animal, if you're looking to build for a hunt in the future, or if you're just looking for an over-the-counter, I want, I want to get out, get experience. There's, a like, uh, for instance, Nevada has no over-the-counter opportunities for resident or non-resident. It is all limited drop, the entire state, for every species. Um, so if you're really looking for a, a trophy quality animal and willing to, you know, put in each year with the possibility of not drawing until essentially situ- your number gets called, then that is a great place to start. The flip side of that is is uh, a place like Idaho where you have limited entry and uh, and over the counter. Idaho's downfall to the over the counter, um, which I just experienced uh, two days ago is they put a quota on all non resident tags for specific units. It used to be by a, a general gear tag, Now you use it anywhere in the state on any general season, archery or rifle. And now it's unit specific and they've put a cap on those tags for uh, for the number, I think it's 10% of the, you know, the average number of hunters that unit sees, 10% of them are being non resident tags. They're over the counter, but you have to be logged in at you know, certain, I think it was 9 a.m. Pacific time, um, by 9 a.m. to a waiting room and then they kind of do a random draw on your number in line. I, I was, I think, 11,400 in line. Oh my God. Yeah, and I, I was fortunate enough that, um, my dad had actually gotten in line also at the same time and he had a much better number so we ended up getting our tags, our deer and elk tags and I, I just had to pay him back. Um, but when when you're looking at state selection, first thing is species. Whatever species you're you're looking looking to go after, you should base your state selection on the species first. Because some states have a great population of elk and, or uh, or mule deer, and just a really tiny you know s- select location of elk. So you, you obviously don't want to you're looking to go elk. That's not your number one place to go.
0: What are some resources that you would recommend as far as finding that kind of information out?
1: um, Go Hunt. Go Hunt is probably the best resource uh, for everything. Draw odds, population. uh. There's another one um, that I I use pretty religiously, and it's uh, it's a lot like Monarchs. It's called Base Map. And Base Map, when you download um, maps, like I, I think I have all the Western states online, You can click on a unit and it'll tell you what the harvest statistics were, you know, for whatever years are selected, whatever years have been reported to that particular app. Um, the members research section of Eastman's magazine is, that's probably the best overall resource for Western states because they'll give you trophy quality, draw odds, um, harvest statistics that they, pretty much give you everything but a tag, um, in that, uh, the member's research section of, of Eastman's Magazine, which I, I think you have to be a member for. hmm
0: Um. Now, when you're, when you're deciphering, at, uh, harvest statistics, what are you looking at there?
1: Uh, number of hunters, uh, against the number of animals reported as far as harvested, um, like I think in the unit that we hunt in Idaho, harvest statistics for the rifle season are around 60%. So 60% of everyone that reported hunting in that unit, you know, killed an animal, whether, whether it was a, a forking horn or, you know, a a giant, you know, 180 inch plus deer. um, That's where I I look more at harvest statistics than I do trophy for Because the number, if the numbers of animals are there, you know, you, even in the given years, you can see by the number of hunters, especially if there's limited access, if it has a high harvest rate, there's clearly a good population of animals within that unit. Um, so that, that that's what when I'm talking harvest statistics, I'm looking at the overall harvest, whether it's you know, nose, bucks, you know, whatever the size of the buck is, that's my, my go-to look at that. And
0: uh, one thing that I want to mention here is uh, something to keep in mind is checking to make sure or looking to see if that state has a required check-in. So what I mean by that is I believe Idaho does have a a, uh, required harvest check-in, correct? Harvest report.
1: Yes, Yes, they do. And if you don't, do it, you end up getting fined.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I was going to say you either get fined or you don't get your license the following year. So, the reason Correct. that I bring that up is now, in in theory, you should be getting 100% exact statistics on that harvest rate. Now, if that state does not require, which I don't think a whole lot of them do, but if that state does not require uh, everybody to report their harvest, you are potentially looking at skewed data. Now, it will still give you Correct. a decent representation, but yeah. if you... And and this is really up to you, but this is just the way that I look at it. If the state huh? doesn't re- require a harvest report, in my eyes, I feel that the majority of people that don't harvest don't report. I would totally agree with you. So you could see a skewed success rate when uh, those conditions are all there.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, California and Idaho both have man- mandatory reporting uh, harvest or no harvest. And where the, the numbers will still get skewed is if they have a mandatory reporting, regardless of, of whether you harvest it or not, is the honesty of hunters. I mean, are, are hunters, put, even when they harvest one, are they putting on their report that harvest? Right. Or are they not? Um, it's kind of like the, you have to name a landmark on your deer tag in California nearest where you killed that deer um not many hunters they're not gonna put in you know, a section township range of where they killed the deer right because we're we're all to some degree like to hold it close to the chest, especially if you have an area that nobody else is you know typically hunting yeah, that's so the numbers that's a really good game point. Yeah, numbers game can definitely get skewed on that as far as statistics and uh, if people are harvesting or even reporting honestly, that Right. Yeah, right. Um, t- tag allotment is within that numbers game to kind of piggyback off that. The, the number of tags available is a huge thing to look at, too. If a unit has 2,000 tags available, there there's going to be a higher population in that area as opposed to a unit that may only not necessarily, they're not necessarily joined, but if a unit only has 500 tags available, and it's an over-the-counter type of unit, the 2,000 tags probably has a higher population of deer, which is why they have more tags than that. that particular.
0: Gotcha. Yep, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Um, am trying to think what else... I. So I'd really like to stay away from gear. Um, I want Mm -hmm. that to be a a separate podcast because we might actually even just do this in series. Okay. Um, Is there anything else that you think we should cover that has to do with uh, region selection, um, state selection, unit selection? Oh, uh, I do want to cover this. I remember now. Can you explain the difference between a true lottery, preference point, and... uh,
1: I think that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, yeah, a lot uh, a true limited entry or a preference point type draw. Mhm. So out west, every state has a a different system. Um obviously I, I have I have more experience with hunting in Idaho than I have in uh, the, the other western states. I I've hunted other western states as well. Uh Idaho is a true lottery draw. It is 100% random every year. Uh, for non-residents, Idaho allots 10% of the total number of tags are non-resident are for non-resident draw. So if it, a unit has 100 tags, only 10 of those are going to be for non-residents. So as far as drawing statistics, if you look at a unit like that that only has 10 non-resident tags, you're kind of looking at the odds of uh, you know how many other non-residents are putting in that unit, because the, the total number, then, of applicants doesn't really matter. It's just non Right. Then you look at a state like Colorado or, or Wyoming, for instance. Both of those states have a true preference point draw that you can plan. Um, I, and I, I don't have much experience with Colorado, but the units I put in for Wyoming, I know when I have seven points, I will draw that money. It is, it is a guaranteed draw at seven points. So I don't buy a license or anything in Wyoming building up too, because I I know where I'm looking to go. So I just buy the points every year planning for that. And then a place like California has a reference point. So your odds are better. And Nevada is the same way. Your odds are better the more points you have, but there's never a guarantee that you're going to die. If that makes sense.
0: Gotcha. So... Kind of to uh, elaborate on that, for example, a state that has a true lottery draw, like Idaho, Mm -hmm. uh, you're putting your name in the hat, and if you get drawn, you get drawn. If you don't, you don't. Exactly. A state like uh, California, where you can buy preference points, it's just extra tickets into the hat. It's still a true lottery. You just have extra chances, correct?
1: Exactly. Nevada is the same
0: way. And Nevada is the same way a state like uh Wyoming where they basically pick from the the top of the um, preference point criteria so let's say it's it's unit unit H in Wyoming and that unit takes seven points to draw you know that you can just buy preference points and once you get to that seven points you're good to go so in seven years uh you can you buy multiple preference points a year in Wyoming, I forget. Um,
1: Only for, you can only buy one point per species.
0: Gotcha, okay. Yeah, so uh, you know in seven years, if you're looking for unit H, you are going to hunt that seventh year if you had no points. Now, there is a little bit of trickiness to the, the preference point thing. There's a thing called point creep and uh, weighted preference points, correct? Yes. So do you want to cover that a little bit?
1: Uh, as far as like the the weighted reference points
0: yeah, and how and and how point creep can uh take an effect where you might be looking at a state and let's say you have no points, and it's currently right now at uh like Wyoming unit h if it takes seven seven points well okay. the, yeah, talk about that so the
1: the point creep is and, and that that's exactly what happened in California. Um, is point creep. So looking at Wyoming, hypothetically, unit eight you're going to put in, and in seven years you're going to draw that tag. But at that given time, everyone's planning for seven points. So by the time it comes around to seven points, that point creep might have bumped it up to eight or nine, given the number of applicants against the allotted number of tags. The only way a point creep will not affect a unit in in, uh, Wyoming or, or Colorado or in California is if the number of applicants and the number of tags doesn't change at all it would have to, the, the number of applicants has to stay constant essentially um, that that's exactly what's happened in California I, I, you know at the beginning we had talked about a unit I, I hunted here that it wasn't every other year draw it was still preference point based but then the number of tags got by more than 60%, and the number of applicants didn't change. Right. So that went from a one-point draw to a, a four- or five-point draw, depending on the year and the number of applicants.
0: Right. So with with that in mind, something to always keep in the back of your head, and uh, I, I don't think it's built... It, I guess it is built in a way like where you buy preference points for certain units. You there, there are states like that. Um, you need to figure out basically when you're going to draw the line. Uh, right. The way the trend is going, you, I don't see point creep going away for a while.
1: No, um, I, I would have to agree with you. There, the it, it's gonna that point creep's gonna continue, and. And honestly, it's, it's good and bad. It's bad for those that are getting close to that point where they're getting ready to put in for those, those limited entry tags and very stakes. And then are, are, you know, almost inevitably going to be disappointed because of that point creep. Well, on the flip side, it's great because there's that many more people that are becoming involved right. um, in, 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 you know, the hunting and within, you know, the, the whole conservation aspect of hunting. So it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword um, from a hunter's aspect. It's unfortunate that you've been putting in for however, however much time. And then when it comes time that you think it's, it's your turn to punch the ticket and it's not, it, it, it gets disappointing.
0: Right, right, um, exactly.
1: But across the board, it gets disappointing.
0: Now, I think they are working on some legislation, um, various states, to try to combat the, the point creep um i
1: don't really,
0: I, I don't really know how you get around it i i was listening to um a gentleman from uh U- the united bow hunters of colorado and he had an idea that he's trying to bring to legislation and i i'm going to screw it up this isn't like verbatim but it basically has uh, an allotment taken out of the uh, the top tier every year so uh, like Colorado has a weighted point distribution, right? Hmm. So let's say that you need to have a a minimum of three points to be able to even just be drawn in that unit. Okay. Um, once everybody gets into that three point, the pool and the applicants just grows and grows and grows, and your your chances of uh, being picked decrease more and more and more and what I guess what he's trying to change is having it go to a a preference point true preference point system where all right if there's sixty app or there's a thousand applicants that have uh, three four points and let's say that there's a hundred and fifty and there's two hundred tags you take all the top tiered preference points and then you take half of the the next tier which would be like let's just say it's 6 points right and, and you basically chunk away at that point creep
1: right you kind you kind of you kind of chipping away at it a little bit at a time
0: exactly and bring, and bring it down now um i'm not sure if that'll happen like i said i'm not even sure if i 100% got that correct but that is the way that i understood it have you heard of um Kind of like that system.
1: I I haven't. I um. I have heard of uh, various states. And, I, and a friend of mine who lives out in Wyoming was talking about this to me just a few days ago. And what it, the way he said it, and I'll, I'll probably I'll probably mess this up too, lost in translation. But the way he described it is that they're going to put um, basically if you're buying a preference point, it's not a preference point for the state. To be a preference point for the unit specifically. So like for, for Wyoming, for instance, right now, if you buy a preference point for deer, elk, antelope, any big game species, it's a, it's for the state, not a unit. Hmm. But then when you get enough points, you select the unit. You're gonna for. And those points all go to that unit. Their legislation is looking at, you know, for like go back to unit H in Wyoming, that their preference points you have to buy it specifically for unit H which then kind of narrows down the, the total number of preference points because if I'm buying them for H, but I get eight points and decide I'm going to put them for G, everybody that's been been wanting to hunt that G, if I have more points than them, I'm going to bump them out of that lot So and so you said they're, they're trying to combat it by making units specific to kind of spread the point usage throughout the state rather than everyone's pulled up into all these points and then just kind of put themselves out of, out where they go. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like to me, the easy, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's kind of shitty in the fact that like you have to pick your unit, but it's not necessarily bad because, um, if you're, if you're very invested in the unit, you can keep putting in for that unit and just plan on drawing that unit and get very familiar with that unit. But once that unit goes to crap and there's potentially all these hunters or the hunting quality goes downhill uh you have all this time and money invested in this unit and now you got to start all over again but exactly. the flip side of that is though if if they do it in a way where you do have to select a unit and let's say you can move those preference points around that's really shitty but if they keep it in a unit specific allotment so let's say you have six points for unit h and then you're like eh, i'm going to try for a different unit and see if i can get selected there you shouldn't be able to move those preference points around and bump everybody out.
1: Correct. Bump everybody out already put their nose. Hey, we're hunting this because we have four points, but now all these five or six point applicants decide, Hey, we're going to go here instead and kind of screw them out of that. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So it's, again, it's still a double double edged sword. And I don't think realistically they'll ever really combat about it in a way. I mean, they won't make everybody happy. Somebody's going to get burned one way or the other. But when he was explaining that to me, I, I could definitely see the the benefit of that kind of alleviating um basically a like what like what you said, point hopping around the state. Because I, I I know what unit I want to hunt. I want to hunt unit D in Wyoming. And that's why I won't put in for Wyoming. I, I think that the one I'm looking at is nine points. But if I get to nine and points and now it's 11
0: points. That, that's yeah. going to be pretty frustrating. For oh, sure. My. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, is like this is, this is the the thing that really holds me back from going after premier units. Okay. Is mm-hmm. the point creep. So let's say, let's say that I want to go after uh, unit G in Wyoming and it takes seven points and mm-hmm. in seven years, it eventually bumps up to 12. Well, I could have put in for a better unit in like let's say Arizona or Nevada or New Mexico and potentially have gotten that um in those with those twelve points. You know what I mean? That's that's the really like sketchy side that really
1: holds me back in putting in for premier units. It, and it's it's tough too, man. I, I was I was gonna going to start buying points in Arizona um for deer, elk and antelope and I was looking at almost two thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. If I were to get drawn, and I mean, I I can't I can't afford to drop two grand on on a hunt, you know, on a limb. So it it, it definitely narrowing it down, and I mean, understanding your physical and your physical ability and your skill set, as well as the financial responsibility that comes with coming anywhere out west. Because I'll tell you, they are all pretty proud of their prices for non westerns
0: When 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 Idaho jumped, man, I was I was just like, holy crap, this is crazy.
1: Oh, I was, I was so mad. Man. Me too. Uh, so the last... I, I didn't elk hunt last year in Idaho. I think the last year I elk hunted in Idaho was 2018. Um, an elk tag was $416. And you could buy a second elk tag after the season opened for 247 And now, an one elk tag costs the price of two. Mm-hmm. It just... I mean, I, I want to say it was uh, a little over thirteen hundred dollars for deer, elk, and a license. Yep. Two days ago, which is just completely asinine to me. I understand. And my cousin, he's a he's a cop up there in Idaho. He lives in Idaho, and I think for his bear deer, elk, <laughs> uh, antelope, probably anything else he wants to, know, he might have spent one hundred twenty bucks, one hundred thirty bucks.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's insane. Um... And you know, here's here's really the crazy thing, Mike. So, all right, we have an elk population here in the east, in Pennsylvania, and like we have 400-inch bulls. It's it's absolutely insane. Okay, so oh. yeah, it, it's crazy. So, uh, I think I think our elk tag is like, I think it's like twenty bucks. It's not much, but it's a, it's a it's a true lottery with preference points. For a non-resident to hunt elk in Pennsylvania, I think it's like a hundred bucks. A hundred bucks. A hundred bucks.
1: Oh my gosh! <laughs> it, it,
0: and it, it's it's one of those things where, um, and I I don't think there's an allotment. The last time I checked, I don't think that there's an allotment for uh, residents versus non-residents. So non-residents have just as much chance as PA residents. Oh wow! And I mean. I mean, they they shoot multiple 400 inchers every year.
1: Oh my gosh!
0: So, <laughs> yeah, if anybody's looking to potentially travel from the west to the east, PA might not be a bad uh, state to check out. And then there's three, there's three seasons. There's uh, the archery season, there mm-hmm. is a uh, rifle season, and then there's a late season. And I think wow. that I think the late season is both uh rifle and muzzleloader.
1: Oh, that'd be a sweet season draw. Mhm. And you, and you said it's a to, totally a, a lottery draw across the board, huh?
0: Yep. Yep, a... across the board. I'll I'll send you some pictures of some of the elk once we get off here that uh Yeah, elk. I'd like to
1: see those.
0: But uh it's it's pretty wild. I mean, obviously a totally different hunt than hunting uh Idaho, Montana, that's that kind of stuff, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I could definitely see it being a, a different different type of hunt, uh, man. That that just seems like a, a great system we we have we have an amazing elk population in California. We really do. And I have I have eighteen points, and I will never draw that tag. Wow! And even with and I'm I'm maxed out. I'm maxed out for deer and antelope or uh, elk and antelope. But the way their applic applicants draw, I mean, there's I think for the unit I'm putting in for. Total tags between three three seasons, or I'm sorry, between two seasons, is 25 tags. Wow. They have, or yeah, they have 10 archery tags and 15 rifle tags, and they're somewhere in the neighborhood of six thousand applicants.
0: That's insane. Yeah,
1: so if I draw a resident tag in California, my tag is 486 bucks. That's insane. As a resident, if a non resident draws it, I think it's in the the area of about thirteen hundred bucks. Now that's just a (laughs) bag. That's insane.
0: Your 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 elk, those are like those tool elk
1: or whatever they're called. So California is actually the only state that has all three uh populations. We we have where I'm at, um in northeastern California, they're all Rocky Mountain Elk, and there there might be a little bit of uh Bleed over from the Roosevelt elk population um, a little bit to our northwest, but for the most part, uh, northeastern California is all Rockies. If you go west of uh, Interstate Five, which pretty much divides the state um, as far as the east side, west side, um, the northwest is all uh, Roosevelt, and they're all scored as such. Anything killed east of I Five has to be scored as Rocky. Anything scored west of by 5 has to be scored at Roosevelt. And then as you as you travel further south, down to like the uh, the Grizzly Island area, which is a really popular hunt, and uh, like I saw Will Primos did a hunt there several years ago. Those are all Tulio, and California is the only state that has Tulio um, in the, well, I'm pretty sure, within the entire nation. Um, but it's it's damn near an impossible tactic. Yeah. If you were fortunate enough to draw, it, you're almost you almost have to have private land or hire a guide, and the landowners and the guides range anywhere from fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. I mean, you're you're looking at I mean uh, a second mortgage almost, you know. I mean, you're, you're looking at a, a car payment to be able to hunt a tule elk in California. And Grizzly Island is actually, I think, the only place you can draw for a uh, tule elk that you're not paying. Uh, trespass or uh, trespass feed or a guide that's that's insane it's Um, you know what and
0: so I didn't even hear about those elk or know about those elk till uh, probably within the last like two years uh, mm -hmm. and realized that that was like one of those like super rare like subspecies of elk that um, everybody drools over but only a select few of individuals are able to uh, obtain.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I've i seen a lot of tulio um, down just south here, about six hours, a place called Bishop in uh, Lone Pine, California. And there's roughly about three to 400 tulio that sit right outside of town on private land. They're they're, they're there year-round, so I, I've seen them several times out there viewing and chasing the cows around. And it's it's almost like the Holy Grail you'll never get touch. Mm-hmm. You get to watch them and see them. Uh, a friend of mine was fortunate enough to draw a tag, shoot, probably, probably 25 years ago. So it's a friend of mine's dad. He killed a, a, a really big uh, Thule Elf. But tule Elf are the smallest in all aspects. They're kind of the Sitka Blacktail of the Elf family. They are super pretty and super uh, vibrant looking. But they're much smaller than any of any of the other Elf species. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Um, and really, I,
1: they're unique.
0: I thought they were like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There. It, it is. I, I would love to be able to draw that. I, I'd love to be able to draw an antelope porno tag in California. And I, I'm stubborn. I keep putting in every year, knowing I'm probably not. But there's a that you know that one tag that 10% random. I I keep hoping for every year. Mm-hmm. Um. That's a, another thing. A lot of the western states have. You have preference points and you put in for a unit i don't know that wyoming or colorado is but california is if you have five points and you put in even if you don't draw it based on points you draw the 10 percent random tag uh, you still lose your points Wow. they take your points from you even if it was on our like so if you're putting in for a like say for for antelope it's your first year putting in but there's that one percent or you know third or fourth year you're not going to draw that on points but you draw it they take those three or four years you put into those points out. and you got to start all over from square one even though you didn't draw it based on points that's crazy it, it is it, i i I could go down a rabbit hole about california and all their faux pas all day long
0: yeah yeah california could probably be its own podcast oh my
1: gosh i hope not <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, One of the things I did want to mention and talk about was um, that I think oftentimes gets overlooked. There are Western states that make you require, that require hunters to buy their license. Yes. So what that means is, uh, I think New Mexico is one of those states. Uh, Mm -hmm. you put in for an elk draw uh, unit and you are required to buy your license You wait to see if you get drawn, and then they reimburse you the next spring.
1: If you do not get drawn, correct?
0: If you do not get drawn. So, food for thought, if you are looking to put in for New Mexico, you are looking at putting in, as a non-resident, I think it's somewhere like, well, it it probably varies. But potentially, I think it's like Mm -hmm. (laughs) $1,500 for Uh, a $1,500 investment that is going to be out of your bank account for potentially 6 months.
1: Yes. So you you have to make sure you have a $1500 uh buffer between anything else you may
0: <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's there's a bunch of little nuances and I think that's what really ultimately keeps a lot of people from traveling to the west to do these hunts uh because it and, is so different from state to state. And it is just uh, it's, it's a major commitment.
1: Absolutely, and there's, there's actually one state that, that we've not touched on that probably has the coolest loophole um, that I've, I've found in the western states, and it's Utah. Utah is, I mean, it has record book potential in every single unit for every species, deer, elk, and antelope. Um, if you, and I can't remember their exact opening, but their license is good for calendar year. So whenever you buy the license, if you say you buy it March 10th, it opens March 1st, you buy it March 10th. You buy your preference point. The next year, your license is still good until March you know, March 9th at 11.59. So you can buy a point up until then on the same license. So you can buy two points for each purchase of a license. That makes mm, sense. Yes,
0: that does. That's a freaking excellent tip.
1: So that that that's something to, to really for for <laughs> anybody that picks up on this if you want to hunt Utah that, that's a great kind of loophole because they like California's license is a fiscal year for California so July 1st to June 30th is when that license is valid but you you can't put in without buying a new license each year right where in Utah you can buy a license you know on, you just wait till it opens up, you buy it up a couple of days after it opens up, and then the next year you kind of piggyback on top of that. Man, that's a freaking great tip. Um, yeah, it's uh my father in law went and hunted the, the book cliffs this year, and he's he's the one that got me into uh putting in for Utah and kinda of showed me that and I was like, Well that's a great loophole for the system.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's got me intrigued now.
1: There's there's so many different opportunities. And, and another one that really gets overlooked a lot is Oregon. Oregon probably has some of the best uh, mule deer as far as a like, quality trophy mule deer um, in the West. It, it doesn't get the publicity that, you know, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, or, you know, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, those are all pretty well highlighted in social media and, and you know, different uh, uh, TV networks, Oregon kind of gets overlooked, and and there is there's a lot of really good opportunity in Oregon. The problem that Oregon has is the prices. Their deer tags are, you know, exponentially more expensive than other states, which I think is what, again, like New Mexico, kind of draws people away from putting in for.
0: Like, are you talking thousand dollars
1: expensive? No, 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 not that much. Um, I want to say. The deer tag is around 485 almost 500 bucks. Wow. Um, and that was three years ago, when I or two years ago, I guess, when I went there. Um, so, like, in, in Idaho, when we do our elk hunt every year in Idaho, I've always had a deer tag. Because there's an, uh, an archery season that coincides in I use for deer. And you, it's an either-sex uh, elk tag, it's an either-sex deer tag. So, if you're just looking to take meat home, there's plenty of opportunities. I did the same thing in Oregon when I went there for elk I bought a deer tag, and I, I had a charge just to my fell card and then when I got the the notification that it had cleared, I looked at it and I didn't pay attention to the price until then. It's like, wow, <laughs> yeah, that's an expensive deer tag
0: but doesn't Oregon also have a pretty ball in uh or maybe it's Washington combo tag
1: I, I, I you broke off right there what was that?
0: So doesn't Oregon it's either Oregon or Washington? One of them has a really ballin' uh, combo tag where you can get a deer tag, an elk tag, and I think a bear tag for like 800 bucks.
1: Uh, I think that's Washington. Gotcha. Um, uh, Montana actually has a pretty outstanding uh, combo tag system, and they're I'm not real familiar with Montana, um, but they have a really unique uh, way. Uh, So uh, as far as scheduling a hunt, you can just buy a tag. You can hunt anywhere in the state, and different units have different regulations. So you buy an elk tag, uh, you know, the the general uh, elk tag, or I guess the draw, you draw an elk tag, and you want to hunt this unit, that unit has specific regulations. So it may be it's a a brow tine bull only looking at elk, but in the neighboring unit, it's a hair tag. Mm-hmm. And then the other unit, it's a spiker better. Just really odd <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the way it's so unit specific, but it's just one tag, the entire state.
0: Well, isn't Idaho set up that same way? They're just, they have elk management units.
1: Correct. So when you buy when you buy an elk tag, it's for, you know, like if you're going to, the Pioneer Zone, for instance, is a unit that I've run in the past. And they have an A tag and a B tag. Their A tag is generally the, uh, over-the-counter archery tag, uh, which is more often than not a hair tag, either sex. Whereas the B tag, um, a lot of them are, you know, it's a, it's a cow only or in this unit. But then you go, and then that says unit 36A within the pioneer zone is, you know, a cow tag. But then 36B is Browtime time bowler better. Right. So they, they do have kind of the same thing, but when you buy a tag it, it, from the very beginning, it's specific to that management itself.
0: Right. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Okay. I got you. I see the difference between, between the two now. Yeah. Whereas like in Montana it encompasses the entire state, Idaho, it's just that elk management zone, which is, yeah, I do right. that.
1: Uh, that's where Idaho kind of burned the non-residents is they, uh, when they put a cap on those tags, I never used to buy a deer tag or an elk tag on August 1st, right before i leave. That's when I'd buy my tag, and now it's December 1st or you don't get one.
0: Well, that's, that's pretty much exactly what I wanted to discuss and kind of wrap this podcast up on, is uh, knowing when to go and purchase those tags as far as OTC. Now, I know with Idaho... It's pretty much across the board as far as elk and mule deer that if you don't mm-hmm. buy it the day it opens, potentially in the first couple hours it opens, you're not getting a Correct. Right. Um, do you know by chance if it's relatively like that across the board for other states? Um, I know Montana is not. I would assume that the states that are a little bit pricier don't have that issue.
1: No, I... I would actually I as far as I know, Idaho's the only one that you if you don't buy it on December first, you're potentially not gonna be able to buy a tag. With certainly within the first few days of December. Um and and namely because they, they capped the non resident quotas in every single unit. It didn't affect the residents at all. They right. still have it, it does as far as the timeline because the tags all sell out pretty much overnight now. Um but then, like states like Oregon, for instance, uh, my dad went to Oregon last year, and he didn't buy his elk tag until the day before the season opened.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I went to Idaho, I didn't buy my tag till I got there.
1: Yeah, I, and, and, that that was,
0: and that was that was the middle of September.
1: Mm-hmm. And and that was really common. You could, I, mean, I can't tell you how many times I killed a deer uh, with a boat or a rifle in Idaho, went down to a gas station and bought a second tag so I could keep hunting. Hmm. Um. And so they they kind of. They kind of put a damper on that, and I I understand the reason that they did it, to give residents more of an opportunity to hunt within their own state, and I understand that. Yep. Uh The other states, as far as, uh like Oregon's really the only one that I know has true over-the-counter tags. Their timeline is the day the season opens, and that was supposed to change this year, supposed to go entirely to a draw, that there was no more over-the-counter elk tags in the Uh, For the state of Oregon, for residents or non-residents. Wow. I don't know if that actually passed and that they enacted it, or if it was uh, if it was kind of put tabled for a later date and hasn't been voted on yet. But their their regulation was, you know, if it opens, it always opened the last Saturday of August, whatever that that day may be, and it was open for uh, 30 days, consistent or following that. Um, as long as you bought it before the season opened it was their only stipulation but after the season opens you can no longer buy a tag so there was no opportunity for a second year tag or second tag after the season opened. gotcha
0: wow yeah that's interesting um it, it's funny so i'm really curious and uh i guess i'll ask you this how mm-hmm. do you see the west as far as hunting opportunities looking in the next let's just say 10 years. Uh,
1: That has actually been uh, a pretty big topic of discussion, uh, especially amongst my family and friends here. Uh, I don't see it it changing drastically for a few states, uh, namely uh, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. I don't see Idaho changing a whole lot more. But for the more uh, politically influenced states, especially in Nevada, California, and Oregon, um, the opportunities are becoming less and less because there, there's more and more legislation that, that's been passed by, say, a population that doesn't really have any idea what they're voting on. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they see what's, what's spoon-fed to them, essentially, from social media, uh, news networks, on TV. Isn't,
0: isn't Oregon potentially closing their bear season?
1: Yes, um, that's actually a really big issue that Oregon has right now. And that's, that's, uh, that's becoming a real concern as um, conservation aspects of things because they, they feel that their bear population has taken too big of a hit when their bear population has grown like 6% um, annually the last 15 years. And 6% is an extreme number. Yes, even the quota, the tag quotas and tags that that building it's still growing that much, because um, Oregon doesn't really have any, anywhere that they have a heavy bear population. They don't have uh, a real extreme winter as far as cold temperatures or snowfall, and California is the same way. Uh, the only place that really gets extreme with snow is the high Sierras, going down towards like Yosemite Park and, and kind of through the east central side of California but when morgan proposed that closing the bear season they were actually trying to close all hunting and fishing opportunities period they were going to wow. shut it down entirely which would honestly would do far more and and which has been certainly no no surprise to anybody that that that's going to listen to this podcast that would be a horrible idea and and it would be far more detrimental to uh to the entire ecosystem, from from you know elk all the way down to you know bugs crawling on on the ground, and it it's it's really concerning. However, it, that did not pass. But what followed shortly after that was the ban uh, on black bear hunting in California. Tried to do the same thing. Thankfully, that was uh, that was put out and, and voted on and shut down at the at the legislature. Um, California it, has has a lot of a really bad issues as far as as far as that kind of thing goes. The well, you, guys, you guys the, have the cat issue. Oh my gosh, do we?
0: <laughs> and I mean, I don't. It doesn't look like that's going to be changing here for the very foreseeable future.
1: No, that. So I'm I'm 33, and Mountain Lions have been outlawed hunting far longer than I've been alive. Uh. And the the problem that we we really have with the mountain lions now, and the lack of success we have had in managing, or, or lack of management altogether, the for them, is California reintroduced a Canadian gray wolf uh, about ten years ago, and a gray wolf in Canada they survive you know three to five pups a year because of the extreme winter, in California and Oregon they're going to survive fifteen a year. Mm-hmm. So that population is that—that's a—that's a big rabbit hole for mismanagement <laughs> in California.
0: <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is.
1: But the the opportunities um, in the West, I don't, I don't see them changing a whole lot in the next ten to fifteen years. Um, depending on political influence, it, it, I think it all comes down to how much political influence is really going to play a part in uh, in the conservation side.
0: Well, so here, uh, like, and just to play the devil's advocate, I do agree with you to some extent. However, I'm sure Colorado never thought it was going to be what it was, what it is now. Yep. And Montana is on its way. Idaho is already on its way. I mean, yep. so as far as like those two states go, they could potentially be just food for thought, the next Colorado. Um, I don't see Wyoming going that way, um, at least not like you said for the foreseeable future in the next ten to fifteen years. But right. potentially for Idaho and
1: Montana. You, you know, I I would actually have to agree with you there. Um, just just given the the way the ball has seemed to roll, with especially in Idaho. Uh, Idaho has become a, a more condensed version of California
0: a baby california
1: it really has and and i'll blame that on people that moved out of california to get away from it and then voted the same stupid way mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that's honestly i i don't tell anybody when i'm up there that i'm from california <laughs> I'm a, i tell them i'm from northern nevada because I, I i i've had a lot of strange looks you know when talking to people cuz i i'm not what people picture from california but not to get sidetracked with that, the uh, I totally agree that it very well could if, if it does not see some drastic change. Uh, other Western states, I I don't see Wyoming because Wyoming's kind of that. There's no people in Wyoming, right? I mean, it's a vacant desert state, which is it, that's why I love it. Uh, Montana, with its uh, I mean, it's it growing population-wise, pretty pretty quickly and seems to be going more to the uh, I guess you it the, the leftist view but it, it's maintaining consistency so far but I'm hoping that one doesn't change and I'm hoping Idaho doesn't get any worse mm-hmm. uh, the opportunities I think will always be there they're just kind of I think kind of like Idaho I think yeah you're you're probably right it'll probably just get to be a little bit more difficult not gone but Idaho used to be a guarantee every year and now that's that's a shot in the dark yep. uh,
0: and it didn't take too long for that to happen
1: no that, that's that been the last 10 years hmm. it has completely flipped over uh, I, I still I, will, I won't put Idaho and California in the same in the same uh, uh, group because I, I definitely like Idaho and California <laughs> Uh, but it, it is definitely swinging that way. The pendulum is definitely swung in a way that I'm certain most residents <clears throat> in Colorado, Wyoming, or Colorado, Montana, and Idaho, but they didn't expect anything. Like that. Right.
0: Yep. No, I a hundred percent agree. All right, Mike, we'll wrap up there. Uh, if the listeners have questions and want to get some advice for you on going on their first, uh, Western hunt, they want to talk gear. They want to talk, uh, uh tag strategy that kind of stuff mm-hmm. how do they get a hold of you?
1: uh you can find me on instagram uh it's Hunt in which is, uh h u n t n i n taxidermy is my username on there uh facebook michael Warren um shoot me a message let me know and i'll I'll gladly share anything I can do to help somebody and, and get somebody going because really hunt out west is it's it's an amazing experience and sometimes it's a, it's amazingly bad. <laughs> but it, it can be just an awesome experience and borderline addicting. Uh but yeah, in, anytime if they if they want to message me anytime I uh I have limited access to my phone during the week while I work. But uh, absolutely shoot me a message, send me a, a request. I'll uh I'll get with you and we can talk or message. Any way I can help about it, I absolutely will.
0: <laughs> I'll have Mike's uh contact for his socials, uh in the show notes, I appreciate Mike for taking the time to hop on. Uh, we're gonna definitely have to do some part twos and part threes because uh, we barely just scratched the surface here.
1: Oh, absolutely, man. I I, I appreciate you having me, Tori. Thank
0: you. Bro. Yep, yep, absolutely. All right, thank you everybody for tuning in to the Whitetail Theories podcast.